Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington Lee School of Law, where I teach and research in the areas of business law, including corporate governance and ethics, commercial law, including contracts, and I focused extensively on personhood rights. The topic of today's episode is, is it time to decriminalize sex work? And we'll be centering our conversation around the work of one of my guests today, India Thussey, whose groundbreaking work, including her recently published book, Policing Bodies, Law, Sex Work, and Desire in Johannesburg, has challenged the feminist notion that sex work is always a source of oppression for women. My guests, India and Erica Wilson, will help to explain some of the nuances of sex work, including how the criminalization can harm marginalized women. Now, I am very excited to have these women on the show with me today. I consider them both to be great friends, and they are amazing scholars. So I will allow them to introduce themselves. First, Erica. Hello. Thank you for having me, Carlos. My name is uh, Erica Wilson. I'm a professor of law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I teach a variety of courses, including education law, critical race theory, civil rights, and run a civil rights clinic. Um, my research focuses on education and the law um, and the intersection between race and the law and the ways in which the law fosters racial inequalities in education. India. Thanks for having me, Carlos. I've been enjoying the show and look forward to our conversation today. Greetings, everyone. I'm India Tusi. I'm a professor of law at Indiana University, Bloomington, Maurer School of Law, and a senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute. I'm also a legal fellow at the Opportunity Agenda, a social justice communication lab. And my research and teaching focus on examining racial and sexual hierarchies and I focus on how they play out in the policing and criminalization of various forms of sex work. Awesome. I'm very, very excited. And if you do not have India's book, I just want to plug it for a minute. It is great and it is available everywhere that you can buy a book. Amazon, anywhere you can get it. Um, it's a groundbreaking work. It, it you know, explores, goes into depth with South Africa. Um, and it's just amazing. And she wrote it while she was pre-tenure, which we're told not to do. Um, I also wrote a book pre-tenure. So, you know. I don't think people who aren't professors understand what a feat that is. So congratulations on, on getting that published and out. All right. Now, India, probably makes sense to start with you. Your scholarship is focused heavily on challenging feminist notions and challenging us to reconsider our perception of sex work. Um, and I think it helps to start with what the harm is. You know, what harms come from making sex work a crime? Well, first, Carlos, thanks for plugging the book. Um, and, you know, I, I've been really thinking about the ways that, you know, some of our assumptions about how we protect women have been really problematic, especially within uh, the feminist discourse. And so I want to take a step back and just kind of situate where we are right now as a society. And I, I think there's this increasing awareness about the harmful effects of policing and the criminal system. 
you know, there's recent polling in the United States and other countries that show that people are concerned about mass incarceration, aggressive policing, racist policing. And many people actually have been impacted or have family members or friends who have been directly impacted by the criminal system. So we recognize, you know, the criminal system can bring harms with it. However, throughout history, there have been these strands of feminism that have heavily relied on punishment and incarceration and policing in order to vindicate women's rights. So you see this, especially in the area of sex work, where some feminists who claim to espouse these really progressive and egalitarian beliefs champion criminalization as the mode to protect all women from sex work. So they claim that sex work objectifies women and therefore should be subjected to some form of criminalization, some form of policing. However, the harms of the criminal system still exist in this area of criminal law and criminal regulation. So those concerns that people have about mass incarceration and aggressive policing also play out with the policing and criminalization of sex work. So particular to sex work, there has been racial profiling. So Black women are disproportionately arrested for prostitution offenses in the United States. There's also profiling of Black transgender people for merely being present on the street. There's exploitation that comes with policing and criminalization. And this is exploitation that's sponsored by the state. So this plays out through coercive police practices like sex in exchange for not getting arrested or arrests for merely possessing condoms with you or arrests for merely being present in public spaces, right? In addition to these you know, direct harms that come from the enforcement and criminalization of sex work, there are also a number of collateral consequences that come from criminalization. So this might include you know, removal of children from a sex worker's home or them losing custody due to the child regulation system and due to that arrest that they might have. There's also, you know, a general lack of access to housing or banking because, you know, the work that they're engaging in has been deemed criminal. So the harms that make, you know, mass incarceration and aggressive policing problematic in other contexts also make, you know, mass incarceration and policing um, as it pertains to sex work very problematic as well. You know, and, and you, you bring up some interesting points. And one thing that you know, triggers in my mind as I think about it, um, you know, two major things. One, um, you know, that we talk about mass incarceration, the problems of policing system, and because sex work is woman-centered, I think that is one reason that it, it gets eliminated um, or gets just ignored. Um, we've got the idea of paternalism that, you know, we need to protect women and the way to protect women is by making something illegal that women might do to free themselves or that a certain type of woman gets profiled for and another type of woman does not, which makes me think of all of my days back in undergrad and, and learning in feminism and Donna whore complexes and all that kind of thing. Um, and then the last thing it makes me think about is, um, and I'm not a criminal law expert by any means, but, you know, I recall doing my work with women's organizations, how so many crimes that women commit and especially women's women of color commit are crimes of poverty, right? And so you've got the, the class disparities that come into play of, of the, the class of woman who has somehow found herself impoverished and it ends up being a vicious cycle, right? You know, one th you know, you get arrested for having a condom on the street and then 
you lose your children and you lose your home and it just like kind of snowballs, um, which, which kind of transitions me into Erica's work because that vicious cycle, especially for black girls can start early. You know, it can start in education. Um, and so Erica's work has been very instrumental in exposing some of the disparities in education for black girls, particularly disparities based on skin color um, and, and just, you know, groundbreaking work there that a lot of people have not focused on. So I would love for you, Erica, to kind of talk about how these disparities in elementary school can translate into harm later in the criminal justice system. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would take a step back and say generally that school discipline for Black children is very much linked to um, the ways in which we overemphasize criminalization as a solution, mainly due to our national fixation with maintaining a carceral state, uh, which has some or many links to uh, enslaved Africans, but that's a whole nother um, podcast. Um, but I will say that in order to really understand the harm specifically to Black girls, it's important to contextualize it in the context of school discipline practices in the school-to-prison pipeline. So when I say the school-to-prison pipeline, I mean the process whereby children are funneled out of public schools via exclusionary discipline, uh, things like suspensions and expulsions for what are often minor infractions or zero-tolerance policy infractions, and then they end up funneled into the juvenile and adult criminal system. Um, it's also important to understand the school to uh, prison pipeline is particularly prevalent for children who attend schools with inadequate resources, uh, which I've written a lot about overcrowded classrooms, lack of qualified teachers, insufficient funding for important social uh, needs like counselors or special education services um, can lock these students into a second rate kind of education and facilitate a second-rate educational environment that becomes more of a warehouse than an edu a place where people go to get education. Um, and so a good example of this is I once, in my through my clinic work, represented a young Black girl who was long-term suspended uh, for bringing what was essentially a modified household uh, item to school, and they characterized it as a weapon. Uh, because they characterized it as a weapon, um, rather than receiving counseling for some issues she was having, she was charged criminally um, and also kept out of school, which led to her going down a terrible pipeline of involvement um, and in things that were not good. Uh, it also made it difficult for her to transition back into uh, into school once her suspension was over um, and made it difficult for her to graduate and openly led to her uh, becoming uh, involved with the criminal uh, justice system further. And so it's important to note uh, this pipeline effect that I'm talking about because for Black girls, um, the school to prison pipeline is real and it's something that doesn't get a lot of attention, a lot of the focus on criminalization, our carceral state, and certainly the school to prison pipeline has focused on Black boys and a lot less on Black girls. Uh, but what we do know is that research has shown that Black girls experience actually exclusionary school discipline at rates that are six times higher than white girls. Um, and they also experience suspension rates that at rates that are 67% uh, higher than Black boys as well in some contexts. And, and 
critical, I think, for our conversation here today is that the reasons that Black girls are typically um, disciplined or given exclusionary discipline is because of subjective infractions, things like defiance or inappropriate dress or profane language or things that, uh, or even physical aggression. And a lot of these infractions are subjective. Uh, and the reason that girls, Black girls are punished for those things is because they don't adhere to dominant cultural paradigms regarding how a girl should look on how a girl should behave. Um, teachers and staff members often filter uh, girls' behavior through paradigms that prioritize white middle-class norms of femininity. Um, so when Black girls uh, express verbosity, for example, or innate le leadership <laughs> skills that may be seen as defiance uh, or kind of physical aggression. Uh, interestingly, uh, Black girls with darker skin are more likely um, to be punished for these kinds of infractions. And so when you consider that in the context of the school-to-prison pipeline, we have Black girls who are being um, subjectively punished more, uh, often fed into the school-to-prison pipeline. It is a feeder system um, into uh, pushing Black girls out of school, uh, lowering self-esteem, and putting them in a position where they are more vulnerable and more likely um, to, to, frankly, end up um, in the criminal system and to turn to alternative alternative ways to care for themselves, uh, potentially such uh, as sex work. And, you know, I, what I, what I found profound in, in, in this is until I read your work, I never thought of these things. And I think our, my own experience in school, and I'm sure all three of us had this experience of, um, you know, always being told you talk too much, always, you know, getting in trouble for dress code more. Um, and even if you're in the gifted and talented classes, and even if you're, you know, it, I can think, and I never thought about the skin color differences, especially until I read Erica's work. And I started to think back to when I was in school and how I might get in trouble more than my lighter skin friend who is still getting in trouble more than our white friend. And you can, you can see those undercurrents and those thoughts about femininity and who needs protection and who who doesn't and and even the subjective part of it right if if a black a dark-skinned black girl is in an argument with someone else who's the one who's who's wrong and who's the one who's being punished um and, and it's just how the social undercurrents that happen outside also happen inside the classroom um and what i also find interesting about both of your work is who is being ignored and who is who are who are we choosing to protect and whose interest are we ignoring when we make all of these policies, right? Who, who is, who's being protected, who's being ignored, um, and why are we per perpetually ignoring? Um, and I would say, Erica, one of the most fascinating things about your work um, is learning that Black girls are disciplined even more than Black boys, because I would have never assumed that. I just never have assumed that. Um, and it makes me realize, even as someone who considers themselves to be informed and educated, I still carry my biases in when I'm engaging with scholarship and thinking about issues of equality. Now, India, I first learned of the abuse to sex work pipeline or discipline to sex work pipeline from reading some of your articles. Um, and I would love to expound on how we combine the phenomenons that Erica is talking about 
with the phenomenons that you're talking about, in addition to, you know, maybe the generation prior, you know, children ending up in the foster care system because their parents are in this loop, to just make it continue to be a system of oppression, such that simply being suspended from school or simply being in foster care can lead you to be in a sex work pipeline that then leads you into the criminal justice system. Yeah, thanks for that. And I really appreciated um, the remarks that um, you were making, Erica. And, you know, like Carlos, it had me thinking a bit about my own experiences in high school. And, you know, there are a couple of things that I think connects with my work as well that that I want to pull out. First, the ways that, you know, when, when Black women and girls in particular engage in behaviors that are deemed to not fit into dominant norms, how they're subjected to increased policing and punishment as a result of that. And that's certainly something that you see in sex work in terms of who ends up being arrested uh, for engaging in sex work and how different forms of just being in the public, right, ends up being interpreted as just necessarily being criminal, Right. And so you see that in terms of people being profiled and arrested, even when they're not engaging in sex work, but because they are, you know, black women or black transgender women, um, they end up being, you know, punished because somehow they um, don't fit into the norms of what we think um, women should um, be engaging in, in in public spaces. And so, you know, I, I think that's a, a real problem, whether it's in the school system or even outside of it. And there was another thing that, you know, that you know, I wanted to kind of emphasize is just the maleness of how the issue of, you know, policing and incarceration is conceptualized, right? You know, when people are speaking about mass incarceration, often it's depicted as this issue that affects, you know, Black boys and Black men, right? Not an issue that impacts women or non-binary people, although women and non-binary people are, you know, subjected to really increased um surveillance and increased numbers of incarceration, even at times when incarceration has been decreasing for um, Black men and boys. And so, and that issue ends up getting ignored, right? And so, you know, the fact that it's, you know, conceptualized as just this male issue, and then women and, you know, Black women and girls are penalized for not, you know, complying with certain norms, um, creates this problem where they're not getting, you know, any protection or being deemed as worthy of protection, but at the same time, they're um, subjected to increased um, criminalization and policing, and it's not receiving, you know, much attention, um, even though we're more concerned about um, mass incarceration these days. And so it, it does create this real problem. You know, one thing that was interesting I found, you know, when I was doing my research in, in South Africa was even when I was, you know, I was doing my research with both uh, police officers as well as sex workers to look at the ways that sex work um, was being policed there. And so I did um, ethnographic work, which required that I do um, participant observation. So basically join the police on their patrols and see how they're carrying out this policing of sex work and then also join sex workers as they were working and, you know, in the environments and do interviews and that sort of thing. So one thing that was interesting that I found out that I wasn't expecting to find out was that officers police different classes of sex workers um, based on their perceptions of their beauty and based on how white they were on this, you know, sexual hierarchy. And the ways that they, the differences in the policing of these different classes of sex workers really reflected these norms around, you know, what we think 
um, what types of women um, are worthy of protection. So for sex workers that they identified as being whiter and lighter skinned, there's this term in South Africa that people will use to refer to light skinned people like yellow bone. Those were sex workers who received additional policing but it was like a benevolent form of policing, right? And officers expressed this admiration about them. Like, oh, these are women that we can respect. They're working girls and, you know, they deserve police protection and benevolence from us. Whereas the darker skinned sex workers, darker skinned um, women were deemed to be less professional and less worthy of police protection, right? And then allowed to have, you know, sort of like this benign neglect, right? Like they're in areas that are too dangerous and they're not worth protecting. So I, I, you know, I I wanted to bring up that example because it illustrates some of the points that Erica um, was bringing out in terms of, you know, even our, the ways that colorism also impacts how people are policed in these different environments and they're policed more hard Partially, not always in ways that we expect, but it can have these really problematic outcomes in terms of them being able to you know, have their needs met and be treated with the dignity um, that, that they deserve. And so, you know, going back to your initial question, Carlos, about, you know, how does this type of policing and being subjected to these um, different sorts of you know, expectations um, leads to this pipeline where, you know, marginalized girls may end up engaging, you know, in sex work is that, you know, oftentimes, especially, you know, for girls who end up being um, incarcerated while they're um, young, oftentimes people end up being incarcerated as girls because they're engaging in behaviors for survival, Right. And so, you know, one mode of survival can be, you know, sex work for people who may be leaving their home because of, you know, there might be an abusive situation at home. And, you know, because they're already perceived as being, you know, problematic or, you know, engaging in fences that, you know, Erica raised as being these defenses that require discretionary discretion on the part of like school teachers or police officers to assess whether they're complying with norms, they end up, you know, experiencing arrest as opposed to receiving assistance or any sort of, you know, social welfare. And so, you know, what you find is that, you know, a lot of incarcerated girls who engage in um, sex work are engaging in it because they're, you know, they have these really difficult home environments. They're not able to seek resources from the people who are, you know, should be providing them resources because they're already presumed to be, you know, problematic in some sort of way. And then, you know, something else that I've been hearing that's really troubling is that, you know, when other people end up being in a similar situation, they're speaking to other girls who might've been running away from home and they tell them about the work they're engaging in. Sometimes those girls, those young people are then, you know, treated as, you know, sex traffickers because they've introduced them to this other form of um, work or ways that they've been um, engaging in survival. And so that can you know, definitely be very problematic as well. So it creates the situation where people who are in these really difficult environments are not able to seek any sort of belief from the system instead being conceptualized as just being, um, you know, these criminals who are worthy of additional, um, you know, criminalization, additional policing, and then often subjected to, you know, incarceration just because they're trying to survive. You know, I'd be interested in knowing if, if either of you know, um, you know, is, is there a distinction or, or disparities between, you know, who gets deemed a victim of abuse or a victim of human trafficking? versus who gets deemed to be a sex worker. Um, and, and do those disparities break down 
both racially and on skin color at all, or if y'all know. Yeah, I don't know offhand, but I think it's a reasonable um, discussion to have based on just the way in which we see um, in the uh, mainstream discourse how uh, women are talked about um, a a victim of trafficking versus um, who um, is a sex worker or or using terms that are not even that um, appropriate or Nice, I will say. I think that um, one point I wanted to raise um, is also the way in which, especially for Black girls, uh, darker skinned Black girls in particular, schools serve as a socializing agent um, to form their expectations about how they do or don't deserve certain kinds of protections. So there's definitely a psychological esteem aspect um, that the poor treatment they receive in schools uh, has on them and the way it colors the way that other students are socialized to see them as well, uh, which allows us to craft these narratives about, successfully craft narratives about who gets to be a uh, characterized as a victim versus who gets to be characterized as um, someone who is uh, doing something wrong, being this awful uh, person who is uh, selling their body for sex. Uh, so I think that's just an important, uh, selfishly giving my area of research to note the way in which schools uh, serve as a socializing agent to allow all of these narratives to to have legs or to uh, take traction. I think it's something that we don't think about enough, uh, the ways in which what happens in schools forms the baseline for the kind of social behavior we will accept and the kind of narratives that we find acceptable. So I say all that to say without having, uh, knowing specifically the answer to your question, Carlos, I do think it's um, a good discussion to have around just general uh, narratives and characterizations and how they take hold and the ways in which schools might play a fundamental role and, and how and why they're able to take hold. And I'll just add, so I'm actually going to plug this piece that I worked on, um, the feminist scripts for punishment. And I'm plugging it because, you know, in it, I make this argument that there is this um, kind of script that's followed, um, especially when you're focused on like the sex trafficking narrative in terms of there being this ideal victim. And often this ideal victim is portrayed as being this young white girl. And in it, you know, I sh- it's not a completely scientific analysis, but I did this Google search of, you know, sex trafficking victim. And what I found, at least, you know, last year and the years prior, which I would do this routinely, so it's a young white girl and a dark looking person right behind them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was the dominant image that you would get, which is really telling and going to, you know, Erica's point about what are the acceptable narratives around this issue. And it's often, you know, you'll see these stories where there's this focus on, you know, young white girls might get snatched up by this dark often foreign, maybe black person behind them who wants to sell them into the sex trades, right? So it, you know, that narrative feeds into, you know, this other narratives that exist, you know, within our society that reproduce, you know, white supremacy that, you know, portray, you know, white female um, 
victims as being worthy of protection and, you know, as a high priority, right? And and I, I think that, you know, your, your question kind of gets to this, this issue that, that exists around, you know, Black women and girls are often not portrayed as being, you know, potential victims, right? And often are just excluded from the conversations um, around this. Or, you know, and 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 part of the reason that happens is because it ends up being this effective script, an effective way to mobilize, you know, the public around this particular issue. And, you know, there there has been, you know, some research around the fact that, you know, this this narrative around sex trafficking, you know, focusing on this, you know, the young white girl and the dark, um, you know, man that might snatch her up has, you know, been a, an effective narrative strategy, an effective communication strategy to, to mobilize people. You know, the, the reason I asked that question is because as both of you were speaking earlier, what popped in my head, especially when India was talking about South Africa and, and the light skin, dark skin disparities. And, you know, when Erica was talking about, you know, the scripts for school, you know, I thought about when you walk through the airport um, or a bus station and you see the sign that's like, warning, this person could be a victim of human trafficking. Um, and it's always either like, usually a blonde, white child, and it even goes that far, right? Like it's even a blonde little girl with like, someone who could be the nanny is how, the only other way I could describe it, right? It's, you know, it's either a foreign looking woman who like, should be benevolent and a caregiver, but isn't. Or it's like, you know, little perfect blonde girl with scary, scary, dark, foreign looking man. You know, you never see, I have never seen in an airport bus station anywhere where they're warning you to like be on alert for kids who are with the wrong kind of people. I've never seen a child of color in one of those human trafficking posters. I just can't think about, it. I can't think of it. And, it, and I think the reason is it stands out to me that I've like every time I see one, I'm like, Jesus Christ, why is this like, how are they perpetuating the stereotype and continuing to perpetuate it? It stands out to me and it's marketed in my mind. And, you know, it fascinates me that it's an international phenomenon. Um, you know, it fascinates me um, that some sex workers get protection and some don't. Um, and then it also fascinates me as Erica is speaking, when I think about my own experiences in the classroom of, you know, when you start to just be silent or start to let things happen to you and just let it go. And when that kind of angry black woman stereotype starts and the fact that it's like, did that start in elementary school? <laughs> right. Did I start thinking I will be an angry black woman if I complain, or I'll be an angry black woman if I speak up, um, or I will be belligerent and outspoken if I, I'm not going to be a go-getter like the white guy. If I raise my hand too much, you know, I'm going to be talking too much. And the fact that those scripts you know, that might play out when I'm in a faculty meeting right now and when I'm deciding when or not to raise my hand, you know, that script of how I'm supposed to behave starts all the way in elementary school. Um, and just fortunate enough to not be one of, you know, the marginalized people who ends up in the system as a result um, of that grooming, right? Like just, you know, it, it makes you think about your own, or for me, makes me think about my own experiences in my own context and how these things are so, so pervasive. You know, now the one next thing I want to talk about is you know, first protection isn't always good, right? You know, being, being the person who's lighter skinned or being the person who's white, who's being protected by the system that is criminalized is not always a positive thing. Um, and I am quite sure as we start saying, well, we should just decriminalize this, um, people are going to come with all the feedback, right? Of, well, you know, women are being exploited by it and women, and they're, 
you know, we can't go as far as decriminalization. Um, and so India, you're the one who's deep in the weeds on sex work in particular. Why must we go all the way to decriminalization to resolve this problem? Sure. Um, thanks for that question. Actually, I wanted to emphasize something that you said. Um, so you described how we are groomed, right? How we're groomed to respond to these external factors. And it's just interesting to think the ways that like white supremacy like grooms us, right? It, it shapes our behaviors. And, you know, as a result of it, you know, we, we are, have that unfortunate position of having to respond and think about how we navigate through the through the world. So I, I just wanted to kind of emphasize that because that's such an interesting way to con- conceive of this, this, you know, this world we're in and th- this problem. Um, but, you know, going to your question about, you know, why should we have decriminalization? What about the harms of, you know, sex trafficking, for example? What's interesting is that, you know, the harms of criminalization and policing are rarely factored into arguments about why sex work should remain criminalized, right? So the harms from the system itself are often just ignored. And I think if you center intersectionality in your analysis, the criminal system isn't a source of protection for everyone. So intersectionality considers how various forms of systemic discrimination intersect with each other and create unique and distinct forms of harm and discrimination. So Black Indigenous women, women of color, Black transgender people, people of color with disabilities have experienced various harms from policing and the criminal system. And if you center their experiences, those harms are are important in in assessing, you know, how should we relate with these communities, right? And what, what, what do they actually need? So with this in mind, relying on the criminal system and policing to protect us doesn't make that much sense, right? What they need is support for their families. They need support um, of their material needs. We don't need additional policing criminalization when these communities often experience policing criminalization as a harm. So decriminalized sex work, I think, is merely just a first step to recognize that we can't punish our way into a just society, like and the ways that I've been thinking about this issue, I've been thinking actually even beyond you know just you know removing policing and removing criminal law. I think about how do we construct the world that would actually make it so people can have their material needs met, where we can have a just society. What do we need, right? Is it also a focus on providing housing to people? Is it also a focus on ensuring that you know everyone is able to make? you know, a living wage, if we even need a wage, right? And, you know, ensure that everyone's material needs are met, that we have access to child care, right? So, you know, I, I often, I've been starting to wonder, like, why do some feminists just focus on more police and criminalization when they can focus on these other areas where we're really not where we need to be as a society, right? Focus on the need to build up our social welfare so people are provided for. And I think that will address some of the harms that we see. But for sure, I think it's important to recognize that the criminal system policing is a harm, right? They bring harms, right? And the most marginalized communities experience violence from that. And I think it's important to note that violence and extend think about ways that we could support those communities without relying on the criminal system. Now, Erica, do you agree with her? Do you think we have to go all the way to decriminalization? 
I do. Um, and I think that it's a really important conversation to have. And people immediately get freaked out when you talk about decriminalization or talk about abolition, uh, because um, I think the concerns presuppose that criminalization works and provides a level of protection. And I think India's point is dead on. It, it doesn't. In many ways, it reifies harms of the most uh, marginalized. I think um, many of the same arguments uh, regarding decriminalizing sex work um, exist in other contexts. I think of my former colleague Lee Goodmark's uh, really good book, I'll plug, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, right? I mean, some of the same consequences um, that exist when we continue to pour time, money, and resources into criminalizing um persons who are engaged in sex work or persons who are engaged, have uh, committed domestic violence, for example, fails to address the underlying reasons why uh, these things happen uh, and doubles down on harm rather than alleviate, alleviating them. So to, again, to India's point, I think a better use of our um, time and resources and a better framework through which to examine this is to uh, ask, you know, how can we build a world where uh, people, some of the exploitation harms uh, with sex work, for example, don't exist? Uh, what if we had a universal basic income? What if we had um, affordable housing? What if we had uh, schools that were actually um, providing uh, quality education and giving people an opportunity to uh, do a plethora of things rather than just warehousing um, kids. So these are all really important questions to ask. I mean, I think the other uh, point that I think it's important to add to this conversation is that you can't really talk about this without talking about capitalism and the ways in which capitalism provides um, uh, baselines for exploitation, um, this idea of competitive markets, et cetera. And so to the extent that we do talk about decriminalizing um, sex work. We have to talk about uh, how we uh, remove some of the ills of capitalism that come with it, like exploitation. And again, this goes to the point of providing things like uh, basic incomes, affordable housing to remove um, some of the exploitive uh parts of it uh, so that people are able to make choices that aren't tethered to survival. You know, I, I love that you brought up capitalism because I am the business law professor here. And so to me, when things like drugs are criminalized, when things like sex work are criminalized, you know, as someone who believes in free markets, um, I question why we will put that sort of morality in our capitalism but not eliminate exploitation or provide social welfare in our capitalism. Um, and so the, the answer that I have for that is whose morality is it, right? So to me, the moral thing to do, if we're going to put morality with our capitalism, is to give universal basic income and to provide basic housing and provide people with food and health care. We have all this money in the world. And then open up all the markets and let people compete. Because some of the people who are involved in things that are crimes don't need to commit crimes anymore if you provide a basic and open up the markets. But instead, we have some markets that are closed that people need to engage in to survive and the markets that are allowed to exploit them are completely open. 
And so to me, my solution would be flip the capitalism. And I think you fix everything else. Um, And so that's always been my approach of thinking about it. You know, if we're going to be free market capitalists, let's put the regulation where it belongs and take the regulation off the people and provide some basics. So I'd love to hear what y'all solutions are that probably aren't so law and econ <laughs> economics based, right? What, if you decriminalize sex work, if you decriminalize these other things that are exploitative, you know, what's your solution for protecting the people who are victims, protecting the people who are trafficked, while also allowing the women who want to do this because they enjoy it, to do it because they enjoy it, while also protecting and breaking the cycle. So either of you can go first. Like, you know, what's, if you could dream a world, what is your solution? Well, I'll say that, you know, decriminalizing actually may be a step to, you know, get some of the protection for people who are exploited. And so in the context of New Zealand, at least, where it's, you know, sex work is fully decriminalized, there's some evidence that, in fact, when you have decriminalization, sex workers are able to then report those incidents where there is you know, people who are um, being sex trafficked because they would be the ones who would be closest um, to the issue and be able to identify people um, who may be sex trafficking victims. And so that's been something that's, you know, really interesting. And even in the context of the United States, um, you know, in the United States, there was um, this law that was passed that, you know, uh, FOSTA and SESA that really um, kind of limited the ways that people could advertise sex work services online and close down a number of uh, message boards that people would use use in order to, you know, speak about clients, collaborate, or even seek out clients. And so what some of the preliminary research is showing is that, you know, as a result of closing down these online forums, there's been an increase in violence against sex workers. And part of the reason for this is because, you know, sex workers are not able to share information about when there is this problematic client and this, a situation that you should avoid. They're not able to you know, report different sorts of incidents or collaborate with each other, right? Or screen out their clients effectively um, in the same way they were able to before this law was passed. So again, I think this is an example, you know, I guess going to your point, um, Carlos, I, I, I'm not sure that I would think that I was going to embrace a free market approach, but, you know, you know, going to your point that, you know, if you, you know, remove the regulation in this context, um, that in fact, that there would be, you know, a less harmful um, outcome. And so I think, you know, when you have decriminalization, people aren't being stigmatized, they're able to report these instances, um, that that's actually going to, you know, improve social welfare. Um, and so I, I think of, you know, decriminalization as that first step, but I think you're, you're right that, you know, decriminalization actually is just a first step. I think, you know, thinking about the ways that people could still have access to housing, how they don't have barriers in that context. You know, another barrier that, you know, sex workers encounter is access to banking, right? And so just being able to, you know, exist in society and, you know, access different resources that we need to exist in the society that we're in is um, really important. Erica, what's your dream world like? Yeah, 100% on board with all that India said, especially about the safety aspect. I mean, another example, um, many people don't know, but I'm actually, I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, So, um, sex work is legal in some parts um, in certain brothels in Nevada. And one really interesting thing growing up in Nevada 
that I always looked at closely as unions. There's actually a sex workers union, um, which is really uh, helpful uh, because we often don't think about long-term security. Uh, so things like pensions and other aspects of financial security that maybe um, a sex worker can't cultivate uh, under this criminalized system uh, would be something that you could put in place if we decriminalize um, sex work. So definitely in terms of increasing safety to India's point, also thinking about longer term economic security, uh, decriminalization could bring that if we allow it for unions. Um, but most importantly, I do think it's about building a world where people are able to engage in sex work because they want to and it's not an exploitive uh, choice that they are pushed into because they feel like they have no other options. And the only way to do that, I think, is much of the same conversation that surrounds abolition and building the world that we want, right, in terms of uh, addressing root causes, things like uh, there should be a uh, a right to a human right to housing that we recognize safe and affordable housing, not just any housing, a human right to uh, food, um, to being able to to make every state has a uh, constitutional provision, state constitutional provision that requires a system of free public schools, but it doesn't require that they actually provide a high quality education. So these kinds of societal constructs are necessary necessary in order um, to, I think, build the world that we want. Decriminalization without addressing these other aspects, I think, leaves us still vulnerable to levels of exploitation. So I think um, this conversation has to be contextualized in the broader sense of addressing our other structural problems and issues that can lead to sex work being exploited rather than uh, a, a free choice. Now, one critique I've seen, um, you know, in the feminist literature is that, you know, even with things like OnlyFans and the online platforms and, uh, you know, pornography going on the internet, um, you know, the argument is when you decriminalize and make it more available, you know, it's it's not a feminist notion to decriminalize because the wrong like women are still being exploited. The wrong people are making the money. Right. You know, it's the pimps making the money. It's the video producers making the money. Um, and so if you decriminalize, you simply have more perpetuation of the oppression of women. Um, and India, you started earlier with a discussion of intersectionality um, and how that is singularly focused. Um, I would love to hear how you have addressed um, the, the feminist pushback uh, for what you have been proposing. You know, one thing's really interesting about um, sex work and actually pornography in particular is that it's the, it's the one profession where women actually make su substantially more um, than men, right? So there is a gender pay disparity, whereas, you know, women actually make substantially more than the men in, in the profession. So I know there is this assumption that, you know, women are somehow, you know, necessarily always being exploited in that area. But in fact, that's not really the case in, in a lot of contexts. Um, and so, you know, with an example like OnlyFans, um, OnlyFans generally doesn't have pimps who are, um, you know, serving as intermediaries. And in fact, what the you find in online spaces and what's happening online is that, um, you know, people who are engaging in sex work 
don't need an intermediary because they're able to use these online platforms to directly screen and interact with their clients. And so that's what you have um, with OnlyFans. And so, you know, in, in, in many respects, you know, the, the online space is allowing people to kind of a, a, avoid and, you know, prevent some of the harms that you might find in, um, you know, street-based uh, sex work and pr- prostitution, which has been, you know, interesting to kind of observe. Um, but, you know, the, the concern about there being, you know, still lingering effects of exploitation, despite there um, being, you know, this online space, I think, you know, there isn't really evidence that that's what's happening, that in fact, we're seeing substantial evidence of people who are, you know, willfully engaging, um, especially in these online spaces, which requires some access. If anything, I think there might be more concern that, you know, some people aren't able to access these spaces and maybe end up in even more vulnerable, vulnerable spaces where they have to engage in street-based sex work, or they might not have access to internet. And so that's a risk that occurs, but I'm not as troubled that, you know, by being able to engage in sex work online, that people are going to be more vulnerable for exploitation because the evidence suggests that, in fact, they're able to avoid some of the more exploitive active aspects of um, street-based um, sex work. Um, so, you know, it, it's still a developing area and I'm, you know, been kind of paying attention to what's happening, but it doesn't seem like you know, that's really, you know, playing out. There, I do want to note, though, you know, one thing that may be a valid concern is, you know, ensuring that people and platforms take down materials that, you know, people haven't consented to, you know, be shared online. And so that's something completely different and dealing with non-consensual uh, materials that are being shared. And, you know, I think Daniel Sintra has done a lot of, you know, great work in that area as well as, you know, Marianne Franks. But um, that's really something else. And I think, you know, that should be immediately addressed. But in terms of people, you know, willfully, you know, uploading their materials and engaging online, I think, you know, they're, they're able to, you know, avoid some of the exploitation that occurs in, you know, live encounters. Very true. Very, very true. Now, you know, Erica, in, in your work, you know, you, you believe in the decriminalization, you know, you've d- done this work in the class with, with, with education system and things like that. And, you know, I, I would love to, to hear from you about, um, you know, what's missing when, when people don't take the intersectional approach, what is missing um, and giving consideration to, you know, the harms of criminalization versus decriminalization when we just focus on one population. Right. I mean, I think a substantial harm when we only focus on one pop- population is that we don't look at the unique ways in which certain um individuals who have um, identities that intersect with powers, um, with um, structures that subordinate what their experience with criminalization will be like. So with Black women, for example, we assume when we don't take an intersectional approach, we assume that um, criminalization will protect them the same way that it might protect a white woman, for example. Uh, And that's just not true. I mean, many uh, of the ways in which uh, Black women are um, can be exploited or abused um, in in sex work, uh, the criminalization makes it worse uh, in terms of a lot of what India talked about in terms of racial profiling, in terms of who actually gets arrested, um, who's actually um, how one is treated once one is actually in uh, the criminal system. All of these things 
matter uh, in terms of the ultimate analysis of whether or not criminalization actually uh, is effective in terms of protecting, uh, if that's the, the stated goal, if it's protection. And I think if that's the stated goal, then you really do have to examine, uh, put an intersectional lens on it. So if you're talking about trans women, for example, uh, their experience with criminalization is going to be totally different um, than a cis white woman, for example. Uh, and so like with other um, systems, failing to take an intersectional approach gives you a shirt that doesn't quite fit and you often uh, frame the problem wrong and get the wrong solution. Absolutely. Now, I'd like us to close out with your predictions. You know, we've seen the decriminalization of things we probably never thought would be possible before, like marijuana. Um, Do you believe decriminalization of sex work is possible? Do you think we can see it happen? I'll start with you, Erica. Do you think it's possible? Tough question. Um, Do I think it's possible? Yes. Do I think it's plausible? Um, I'm less optimistic, um, but... Yes, I will say <laughs> possible, but but not plausible. I think the uh, entrenched misogyny and misogynoir make it uh, less likely, but I'm really interested to hear India's prediction. What do you think, India? Oh, I'm feeling like an optimist, which is which is rare. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I think with, you know, sustained organizing, cultural engagement, cultural strategies, legal and policy advocacy that decriminalization is is absolutely possible, you know, within some years. I think with that type of strategy, it's it's possible. And, you know, as as a kind of a side note, I think the lines between sex work and other forms of work are increasingly blurring. And, you know, I've been writing a little bit about that, but, you know, the concept of the metaverse, which has been a bit bit of a punchline since Facebook's announcement, but really predates Facebook and has nothing really to do with Facebook as much as, you know, Facebook um, suggests. But I think it encapsulates increasingly how we're leading our lives and the forms of sex work that occur in online spaces and this metaverse kind of frustrate common assumptions about sex work and how sexual intimacy occurs. And I think they're going to force us to re-examine our approach to the regulation of sex work because some of our regulations pertain to it. And I I don't think people necessarily think that they're engaging in criminal activities when they're on these online spaces, but the laws are constructed with such broad language that in fact, you know, often they are. And I think that will put these law, the constitutionality of a lot of, you know, laws that regulate sex work and prostitution in question. And I think things will, will, will be evolving. So I think the advocacy and, those cultural strategies is important. I also think that naturally certain things are happening on online spaces that will force us to re-examine sex work. I don't think we ever have optimists on this show. So I appreciate (laughs) you for probably being the first one (laughs) and saying something positive for a change because I now have faith and I believe because you believe. So it gives me some hope that maybe we can see some equality and injustice in the system. So I want to thank you, India and Erica, for joining me on the show. I always don't have enough time. I have like 20 more questions I could ask both of you. Um, If you're interested in reading more about either of their work, it is available on SSRN. Both of them are all also easily Googleable. We we advocate Googling Black women and citing Black women on this show. So look up their work on SSRN. If you don't have an SSNR account, 
You can Google them and see their work on Google Scholar too. You can pick up India's book on Amazon and everywhere books are sold as well. Now, next week, I'll be joined by Anat Beck and Darren Rosenblum, who will continue my focus on feminism with a discussion of their article, No More Old Boys Club, which makes the groundbreaking proposal about how we can achieve gender diversity on corporate boards. If you ever miss the show live, you can catch it streaming on Voice America Network and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can always find me on social media at, at Carlos C. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again so much uh, to my guests. It was a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 